Recovery Elevator, episode 136. Similar to cancer, it's not it's not your fault. It, it happens, mm-hmm. and it, and people are ashamed. And I, I've been ashamed. I don't want to talk about it. But I think the more that people talk about it, and the less stigma and shame is, is put on it, then you know it it will make it better. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for three years and five days. On today's podcast, we've got Megan. At the time of the recording, she's been sober for 11 hours and 20 minutes. She says the words, all these emotions came up that I couldn't handle. It's a big part about getting sober is developing new coping mechanisms to help us handle all these uncomfortable emotions. It was a powerful interview for me because I never want to forget what it was like when I couldn't stop drinking after I'd started, what that anxiety felt like, where I felt it, the acute pain that made me feel like everything was crashing down. It's the ism of alcoholism, the incredible short memory that's extremely dangerous. My addiction constantly tries to remind me that things weren't that bad, but it's interviews like this one with Megan that help remind me that I'm not missing out on anything, and drinking really did suck. And before we get to our topic today, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. Someone emailed me an article on dailymail.com by Abigail Miller, and I wanted to read a couple of the points from the article. New data has revealed that one in eight Americans are now alcoholics due to an alarming rise in alcohol consumption in women, elderly people, and ethnic minorities. Experts at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism say that the rise could constitute a public health crisis that is being overshadowed by the opioid epidemic and marijuana legalization. During an 11-year gap, the number of people who received a diagnosis of alcoholism shot up by 49%, meaning 12.7% of the population, or roughly 1 in 8 Americans, are alcoholics. That's really all from the article that I wanted to cover with you guys. And will any of these stats that I rattled off make you go, Oh shit, I'm done drinking forever. One in eight Americans? That's freaking crazy. No, not at all. The reason why I wanted to read these figures with you guys is, you're not alone. I remember when I was drinking. When I was doing the dance with alcohol, I felt like I was the only person in my city, my zip code, anywhere I looked, that was struggling with alcohol. I felt like it was just me, Pablo, and myself. However, that's not the case. In my personal experience, parallels what this article is just saying. At first, when I read one out of eight Americans is dependent on alcohol or could be classified as an alcoholic, I said, man, that seems a little high, but it's probably spot on. Okay, let's hear from Megan. Megan, how are you? I'm great, Paul. How are you doing? Megan, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? 11 hours and maybe 20 minutes. 
Fantastic. 11 hours and 20 minutes. That's better than no hours and zero minutes. So good on you. (laughs) You got to start somewhere. Yeah. And very slowly that time is going to tick. It's going to start adding up as it already has. You've already got 11 hours. That's better than zero. And listeners, Megan reached out to me about a week ago, um, about 50, 60, 70 episodes ago, Megan was helping out with the You Might Be an Alcoholic If section. There was about 20 podcast episodes consecutive where I had like five awesome You Might Be an Alcoholic If lines lined up, and those are tough to get, but Megan would email me those weekly. And so, Megan, I got to say thank you very much for being part, a big part of the Recovery Elevator podcast. It's good to hear from you again. And it sounds like you're going through the ringer, which is totally fine. That's what this podcast is all about. I went through the ringer for a long time. And you wanted to share your story, and I can't wait to hear more about it. So, so Megan, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be on. And give listeners a little background about yourself, Megan, where maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family? And, Megan, most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Well, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, which I'm, I'm sure people are familiar with because of the wire, unfortunately, but there's a lot more positive aspects to where I live than that. I am 38. I'm single. I have a live-in boyfriend. I also have a Maine Coon cat who I consider my life partner. <laughs> <laughs> he, I, he's 11. I've, I've had him for a long time. I, For fun, I like to do anything outside as long as the weather's warm. I like to run, kayak. I like to write. I like to draw. I love live music. Awesome. I got two things there. Number one, I like The Wire because it doesn't glorify alcohol. (laughs) There's a scene where Nolte tries to make a left turn under this freeway bridge, and he just creams the side like a like a concrete pillar and then he tries to do it again and it doesn't glorify alcohol you know there's some shows out there like Mad Men where it's like man it's hard to watch and not oh drink. exactly right yeah. do, do you know what I'm talking about like no, the, that's true yeah, yeah no that's a good point Mad Men is ridiculous because it's, how do these people drink so much in the middle of the day and not pass out by four o'clock I don't understand exactly yeah. when you see Nolte drink in the wire it's like man I don't want anything to do with that stuff so it's pretty cool number yep. two yeah. you're 38 single you have a living boyfriend I I don't know anything about mm-hmm. dating or whatnot but wouldn't that mean you're not single? Well, I, I, guess, I, I guess by that I meant I'm not married. But yeah, we we essentially act like we're married. <laughs> gotcha. So. That's pretty cool. I've been single for 35 years then. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and you also, you mentioned a lot of creative things. Um, you know, mm-hmm. So what do you like to do for fun? It sounds like you're a very creative person. There's a lot of outlets there. Would you consider yourself a creative person? Yes, I would. And I can't back this up with scientific data right now off, off the top of my head, but a lot of creative people deal with addictions. They struggle with addictions. There's a lot of creative people in the history of mankind. It's just the way the brain oh, have been wired. And myself, I'm, I'm a very creative person, so I just want to throw that out there. But Megan, let's jump into your story. Talk to me about what you know. What what, what forced you to reach out to me again and, and give us a little background about yourself and, and take some time to do this. Okay. Well, I'm not really sure where to start, but I guess I'll just... The reason I reached out to you, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a while and I've sort of been on the fence about it just because it's a big leap. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know who's going to hear this. I hope that whoever listens to it, first of all, that it helps them. You know, I I don't know that my story is very unique. (laughs) I think it's pretty similar to a lot of people, but I I just hope that, you know, the whole point of of what you're doing and, and what a lot of people are doing as far as, as recovery is, is when you can relate to other people and you can 
let me back up for a second. One of the things that I love about what you do is that mm-hmm. you're you um, you're such an advocate of just the acceptance part of it. Like you know, there's so much stigma about addiction, and there's so much people are ashamed to come out, so to speak. And I think that if that if if that part of it was would end, then I think that I think a lot of people would would be more willing to talk about it and be less ashamed. There's so much shame associated with this. It, it, it doesn't matter whether you call it a disease or an addiction or whatever you call it. It's a mental illness. It's it's a it's 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 similar to cancer. It's not it's not your fault. It, it happens mm-hmm. and it and people are ashamed. And I, I've been ashamed. I don't want to talk about it. But I think the more that people talk about it and the less stigma and shame is, is put on it, then you know it it will make it better, uh, for lack of a better word. So I, I didn't start drinking until after high school, mm-hmm. um, which is I think kind of unusual. A lot of people start drinking in high school, and not really until late in my in college. I didn't like beer, so I would drink like a cocktail or a wine cooler once in a while, but I didn't like the taste of beer. And then when I finally did start drinking beer, I just I forced it, and then I I liked the effect. You know, I didn't like the taste. I didn't go out to wine tastings and craft beer or whatever. I I liked the effect. I liked that it made how it made me feel. And I didn't feel self-conscious and I didn't, I could talk to people and I didn't feel like everyone was staring at me and I didn't feel like I was a freak all the time, which I'm sure you can relate to and I'm sure a lot of other people can relate to. Absolutely. But it, it was never really a problem. It it was pretty normal. I, I, you know, I didn't drink every day. I didn't drink a ton except once in a while on weekends which, like everybody else did. And it sort of crept up on me and it was very gradual. And then one day... You know, I was in my late 20s and all of a sudden I thought, I realized, oh my God, I'm drink- I drink every day. And I sort of laughed about it and uh, because I didn't drink a lot every day, but I was drinking every day. How, um, how did you justify also- that, Megan? They said, I drink every day, but all my friends do. Oh, I'm not drinking that much. Yeah. How did you justify at that moment? Because it didn't affect my life. First of all, it wasn't. when I say every day, I don't mean I was drinking a bottle of wine or a six pack every day. I was having two or one or two a day and then on weekends more maybe Mm -hmm. but I did have some alcohol every day I liked to have a glass of wine with dinner or a beer with dinner or two I was also running a lot and I was running I was doing well I was competitive you know I was I I got to work on time every day I I didn't I never got a DUI or anything like that It, it was not affecting my life I you know I paid my bills nothing was wrong so um I I didn't think it was a problem and I really didn't start to question it until it was around 2012, 2013. I started to say things to people like, I think maybe I drink too much and I would have conversations with people. And usually the people that I would have conversations like this with were either bartenders or people that also drank a lot. And most of them were like, Oh no, you're fine. You, you're okay. You're just, or, you know, during that time was actually, it was after a pretty serious breakup, which is when, a lot of people drink more mm-hmm. or do something to alleviate the pain. And, uh, oh, you're just self-medicating. It's just a phase. You're fine. And even my even my parents, my mom, the, the first time that I went to AA was uh, about three years ago. It was after a breakup. And um, I told my mom that I was, I was going to go to AA. And the reason that I went was because the guy that I was with had broken up with me because of my drinking. And, he, and I, I went to AA, not for me, but to try to get him back which is a, the wrong reason <laughs> how'd to try that to get go over, obviously uh yeah not well <laughs> but i but i talked to my i talked to my mom about it and she said really i you you're fine i mean i know you you drink but you don't 
I've never noticed that it was a problem at all. My, my parents don't, I don't live with them. They, I, I see them, you know, every other month or so on holidays. So she had no idea what was really going on, but, but she, she didn't see it. No one saw it except him because I was with him more than other people. So I, I tried it and I really did. I, I, I gave it a go. And that was when I first started listening to recovery type podcasts, yours. There are a lot of other ones that I like. I'll get into that later. But but yeah, I went for a while and I, I stayed sober for a month and I got really depressed about it. I felt like a loser. I felt like I wasn't, like there was something wrong with me. Like I couldn't handle myself the way that other people could. And so then I started drinking again. Hang, hang, hang tight for a second. Can you expand a little bit more on that? So you got sober for a month. You quit drinking for about a month. And a lot of people mm-hmm. I talk with who do this, they experience somewhat of a pink cloud physically, emotionally, and spiritually. They, they start to feel better. But did you feel kind of the opposite? I did get a – it sort of went back and forth. I, I got a little bit of a pink cloud, but it was it was sort of like all these emotions came up. I cried all the time. I hate crying. <laughs> you know, all these emotions came up that I couldn't handle that I, you know, and that's part of the reason why I drink, I drank and people drink is because they can't handle their emotions. And, and, and these, these, all these emotions came up and it, it was kind of almost unbearable, but, but yes, there was a little bit of a pink cloud aspect to it. You know, I did feel good sometimes, but I also, a lot of times, you know, I, I would go to social events with my friends, you know, a lot of my running friends or just other friends. And, um, you know, at a bar or restaurant, and, and it, it, it wasn't a drinking-focused event. It would be, you know, like someone's birthday or something, and, and it wasn't like, oh, let's go out and get hammered. It was a celebration-type thing or, mm-hmm. you know, a cookout or whatever. And people would be drinking, and I would stand there with a Coke and feel like a huge loser. And no one cared. I mean, no one no one cares if you drink or not. Really, they really don't unless they have a problem themselves. But I internalized that, and I felt bad about it. And that's a big thing that I, I need to get over if, I, if I'm going to actually stay sober for good. I got to get over that because that's, that's in my head mostly. So that was one of the, one of the hurdles. You let, that, let me ask uh, a question about something you just said. How long did it take you to figure sure. out that nobody cares? For example, you just said you hated yourself for not drinking, but you're probably yeah. the only person I can tell you, I guarantee you were the only person at that cocktail party that hated yourself for not drinking. When did you finally figure out, Whoa, nobody cares. I can't really pinpoint a time, but it was sort of a gradual realization. Like normal people, you know, people people that aren't addicted to alcohol, they, mm-hmm. they don't think about it. It's like, yes, I like to drink, but they're not focused on what someone's drinking. They're focused on the conversation. They're focused on you. And I and I was like that before too. I when I was before I kind of gradually transitioned into you know having to drink all the time. When I was a quote unquote normal person. I wouldn't. I didn't care what people were drinking. If I was having a beer at a wedding and somebody was drinking a Coke, I didn't care. I just wanted to, you know, dance mm-hmm. with them or talk to them or have fun. And I, I finally, you know, I have to. But I have to constantly remind myself of that. It, this is not a big deal. It doesn't matter. I hope I explained that well enough. No, you did. It, it, you it did. Didn't have, yeah. And, and I've said that a bunch of times on the podcast. But listeners, I want you to hear somebody else besides me saying it that nobody mm-hmm. cares. It's it's pretty cool yeah. to hear. All right. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, and and I know you've said before things like, and one of the one of the tricks that I've used in the past is if it's if it's an event where you're worried about what people think, whether they do or they don't, you know, you get a club soda with lime, and if people think it's a vodka or whatever, then no one's going to ask a question, and you know, you don't you can just avoid the issue. But ideally, you want to just say, you know, I'm not drinking. Let's move on. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. 
all right, so I stayed sober for about a month then, and then I went, and then I gradually just started drinking again, and at first it was kind of secretive, which is ridiculous. I mean, I would drink and go to AA and pretend like I wasn't drinking, and, you know, the thing with AA is people people sniff you <laughs> because they know. Like, they'll come up and give you a hug, and they're sniffing you, and they know. Like, they can smell it, whether whether you've drank that day or whether it's coming out of your pores or anything. They, they know, and they— uh, They know because they've all done it. Yes. Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. But I was I was doing that and I know I'm not the only one. You know, they say there's only one require, requirement is the desire and I had that. So I, I, I went back and I went back and I went back and then finally I just couldn't I got tired of coming back and saying, Yeah, I screwed up again, here I am. I got I got tired of it. And so I just stopped. And I, and there's you know, I, I have mixed feelings about AA. I'm not there's a lot of things that I really like about it. I, I really like you know, I'll hold off on the steps for now, but the I, I like the fact that you can choose your own God and then you can believe in whatever you want, whatever helps you just say, look, I'm not in control of this. I like that. But I think it's a little bit hypocritical that they have to call it God and that a lot of people, you know, make it into a religious group when it really isn't religious. I like I liked the fact that it, you know, it holds you accountable. If you have a sponsor, you're accountable. There, there's a lot of things I like about it, and there are a lot of things that I don't like about it. That's true of anything, mm-hmm. any any group. Nothing's perfect. So I did that for a while, you know, and I still have really good friends there. But it's but it's weird. It's like when you when you fall out, or people call it going out, and then you're back to drinking again, and you run into somebody. It's super awkward, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of like you're two different people. It's like the drinking me and the not drinking me. Mm-hmm. And you have two groups of friends, but in a small, I mean, Baltimore's not a small town, but they call it small Baltimore for a reason. People know each other. So that, that got a little weird. So where I am now is, see, last year I, after I went to rehab, I was sober for about, I guess, a total of almost three months. And then I picked up again and it was not a big deal. And I said, oh, this is great. And then no, hang, hang tight. Is that the grad. longest that you've had is three months? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You said after the three months I picked up again. What, what do you think happened? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it was any one thing. I think, I, I guess there was a, like a last straw, if you want to call it a trigger, I, I guess it sort of was, I still wasn't happy. It was, it was like, okay, I'm sober, but I'm something's still wrong. And, and if I'm, you know, I'm going to do all this work and it, quitting drinking is, is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. And if I'm going to go through all this work and do this, and I still feel like crap all the time, what's the point? And then my ex, this was before I met my current boyfriend, but my ex at the time, I was still sort of hung up on him. And he, I found out that he was seeing someone. And for some reason, that was, I guess, the last straw. And I was at an event. I was at a Pearl Jam show with a, a bunch of friends so and neat. him up yeah, no, I love Pearl Jeff. Yeah, it was up in Boston, and uh, I found that out. Uh, she wasn't even there, but I found it out, and I said, "Yeah, screw it. I'm gonna have a drink. I don't. I can't deal with this right now." So, it wasn't because of that, but it was sort of like the last straw, I guess. It just came to a head, and 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 the thing is that life happens. Things are gonna happen that upset you, and if I can't learn to deal with those things, then I'm not gonna be able to stay sober. You know. That was a big one um, right there. So since, I got to pause you on yeah. that one. Yeah, and earlier yeah. you said, you know, in the first month, when you had a month of sobriety, you said all these emotions came up that I couldn't handle. That's a big one. Yep. Right? So in early mm-hmm. sobriety for a lot of people, there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of emotions that we've been suppressing and doling and numbing for years. And what it is is yeah. we have poor coping mechanisms. And, 
Yeah. You know, that is a huge part of recovery, right? It's a huge part of the retreat that we just did is we had five workshops that were strictly based on new healthy coping mechanisms. And really, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, the, the workshops are great, but the most important aspect was the community, what people took away. But you yeah. know, let me tell, run this by you. Cause I hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. And when people say, Hey, I got a couple months, then I drank, you know, I asked what happened. And I'm not, I'm not expecting an answer. Like I told my car, Oh, I got fired from my job or, or a loved one passed away. Usually what the answer is, is their addiction was lying to them in their own voice. It became so convincing and you're like, I couldn't handle this feeling or thought. And I, I drank. Is that kind of similar yeah. to what happened? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, and, and it, it, it's to the point where it's almost delusional. I mean, I, I told you about my physical symptoms. Mm-hmm. I, I've had, you know, you know, I use, I, I don't run anymore. And the reason I don't run anymore is because there are some days when I, you know, my motor coordination is so bad that it's, you know, walking is, I, I can walk, but there have been times when I couldn't even walk straight and I wasn't drunk. I just like, I'm afraid to run because it, it's affected my motor skills. I mean, that that's terrifying. Yeah. I, I used to break but glasses. I'm still, but I'm, I would break glasses yeah. while unloading the dishwasher. I could barely pick a glass up yeah. and, and move it 10 feet and put it on a, on a shelf. I understand. But, but you, you tell yourself, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's okay. That's, that's yeah. insane. It's, it's insane. And you said another word, delusional. What that is, mm-hmm. that is the cognitive dissonance, which is absolutely exhausting. That's waking up one morning and saying, oh, my God, I'm going to swear this stuff off for the rest of my life. It's the devil. And then later that night, you're drinking. It's exhausting. Absolutely yeah. exhausting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I remember running was a huge part of your life before. You've done marathons. You used to, po- used to yeah. post pics of running. That's got to be tough. I mean, that's, that's a very healthy coping mechanism and an outlet. Yeah, definitely. And it's and, and honestly, running was a huge, you know, endorphins are amazing. Endorphins are the only really healthy addictions that I've ever had, I think. And I've never, I've never, you know, I, I know that people have, you know, exercise addiction and, you know, it's, it's kind of an eating disorder kind of thing. I've never gotten there with it. Running sometimes would calm me down. You know, you, you go for a long run and then you have these endorphins and you go, oh, I feel so much better. You know, you burn. But it, it, it kind of got to the point where in, in the running community, a lot of people also are, are big drinkers and it's like the reward. Like you go, you, you run a marathon or an endurance race or a long run and then you, you know, you have a few drinks and a burger or pizza or whatever and that's your reward. And I got to the point where all I cared about was the reward, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it was like, let's get through this run and then I can go drink. And then after a while, it slowly got to the point where it was, I don't care. I'm just going to go drink. Why should I bother with this? And that's probably doesn't make any sense, but that was the twisted thinking that just like, what's the point? I, I just want to go drink now. Megan, you're, you're, um, you're talking to one of your own. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> I understand that a hundred percent. And you, you yeah. I'm going to debunk something you said a little bit ago that your runners, they're, they're big drinkers. I just did a, a 20 mile ridge run and at the end of finish line, it was, it was nuts and it was, it was crazy yeah. way outside of my comfort zone. But at the finish line, I actually sat there and observed is, and I did not see these runners who just did a 20 mile run doing laps in the beer line. They got one or two beers, had a burger, right? then they were done and we should, right. you know, yeah, they, they drink, but they're not having 14 craft beers like we would, um, but, no, that's that's not the norm. There are people that do that, but and they're like you and me. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's not the norm. It's it's not the norm. It's not the right? norm. Yeah. And talk to me about your you know your withdrawal symptoms and the message that you sent me. You said you wanted to talk about your withdrawal symptoms from twelve hours at twenty four hours at forty eight hours, 
And now there's probably some strategy of picking a time to quit if you don't have the insurance to go to a hospital or go to a rehab. Yeah, well, so it, it's usually the worst is the second and third day. And, and on you know, in, in the past six months or so, the longest I've made it is about that long because, I, I mean, the shaking, the shaking and the, the paranoia and the anxiety. The anxiety is the worst. It's, it's almost like a panic attack. The worst. The, the, the anxiety. It's, it's, I can't stop my, I can't shut my brain off. It's just screaming at me constantly. And it's like, I, I got, I have to do something. I need, I, 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 I don't know how to describe it, but I know that you and people listening maybe know what I'm talking about. It's just unbearable. And right now I'm okay because it's, it hasn't been that long, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm going to work today. You know, by tonight I'll probably be, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to just see how it goes. If, if it gets really bad, then, you know, you know, if I have to, then I would check myself in some somewhere and deal with paying for it later. Um, you know, not having insurance is, is an issue, but you know, I, I don't want to put my health at risk. I, I know that you can actually die from alcohol mm-hmm. withdrawal and that's not true of any other drug. I know that I've done the research on it, Correct. but yeah, it's, it's bad. It's really bad. Megan, my heart is, my heart is hurting right now, Megan. I'm, well, Cause you don't, I, gosh, you don't have to explain it cause I know it. And yeah. I would get, but I think people, this is a thing that people don't talk about very much. And I know that a lot of people go through it. Everybody so. does. And I would, I would get two days and, you know, 72 hours was like the max anxiety point for me. I'd get three days where most of the physical symptoms yeah. would have abated, but that yet my stomach felt like it was just kicked by an elephant nonstop. Yeah. And you can't, you can't eat. You can't eat. It's, you know, and yeah, you can't eat and you're supposed to hydrate a lot and it, sometimes you don't, you can't even force down water. It's yeah. And what I found when I did eat, if I ate a lot and my stomach was really full, it just made that anxiety even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Megan, my heart, it goes out to you because I know, you know what's what's coming down the pipeline in probably a couple hours. And that's that's okay. That's okay. And it's good to talk about it. It's good to notice it. And when it does show up, you say, hey, that's what it's from. And there is some relief to knowing what it's from. And there is a lot of relief to know as well that you've been sober for three months before and the other side is a hell of a lot better. And let's talk about yeah. that, Megan. How How are we going to do this? What's your plan? You know, I, I can't say that I have a plan. I have I have today. I, I'm going to get through today. Uh, honestly, I got to start there. I know, I mean, the one day at a time thing, I know it's a cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. Today, I'm going to get through today. And then tomorrow when I wake up or if I sleep, you know, I'll, I'll worry about that. I'm going to get through today. And then I'm going to get through tomorrow. So right now, it's just getting through today. I have a, I have actually have a plan tonight. I'm meeting a friend, an old friend that I met in AA. Um, I haven't seen him in a while. We're going to grab dinner. Uh, he doesn't know anything that's going on. I haven't talked to him in forever, but I know that he's not drinking. So we're going to get some dinner. Then I'm going to go home. Maybe Netflix and chill. <laughs> that's my plan for today. The best part of your plan is dinner with that, that fellow sober person. And mm-hmm. I highly encourage you to say, hey, how are you? Good. Fine, thanks. How are you? Great. Hey, have a seat. Listen up. And I would be as honest right. as you can. There's nothing to hide. That person's been through everything. And oh, that's the plan. Oh, he, yeah. he's, he's been through it, too. Yeah. yeah. I would just open up and just let him know what's going on. And before we talk yeah. more about you know moving forward, you mentioned something before mm-hmm. I hit the record button, which everybody's gone through. 
is you, you you're starting to realize you started to realize you you've known this for a bit that you're you're gonna have to deal with this, but you don't know yeah. if you're ready yet. Comment a little bit more on that. Yeah, I've had these thoughts for a long time. It's it's like I know that I have to. I want to get sober. I do. I want to get sober and I want to stay sober. But it's it's like, am I done yet? I'm not sure that I'm done yet, and and I'm not sure that I'm really ready. And I know that you have to be really ready. You have to give 100% and not look back. And if I'm being 100% honest, I'm not sure that I'm there yet. I want to be there. I want to be there. But I don't know if I am. And I'm, I'm not sure what's holding me back at this point because I'm slowly, I mean, there's all these things that are happening that are awful that should tell me, stop, stop, stop. This isn't worth it. What are you doing? Megan. So, I know yeah. I know exactly what's holding you back. You gotta say goodbye to your best friend. And I had to do the yeah. same. And it was the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my entire life. And you said that same thing earlier in this podcast. But I want you to do me a favor, Megan. There's a lot mm -hmm. of power in pen to paper. I want you to write a goodbye letter to alcohol. And I want you to put it in your back pocket, put it in your purse, carry it with you at all times. There's a gal at the retreat that we just had this weekend in Bozeman, Montana, that read her goodbye letter to alcohol. And she had to read this letter to herself, you know, step, step away from dinner parties, step away from events and go in a private space and read it to herself. And wow, this letter was powerful. At the end of the letter, it was pretty convincing that the two alcohol and this person needed to part ways. Do me a favor and write a dear John letter, write a goodbye letter and spend some time on it. Okay. It's the hardest thing. You got to say goodbye to your best friend. It sucks. Yeah. No, it's, and yeah, and that's, I like the way you put that, a best friend, because it's, it's always there. You know, some people will let you down. Things will let you down. Circumstances will let you down. Alcohol is always there. You're right. Yeah. And okay. after, after dinner tonight with the AA friend, what, mm -hmm. what do you want to do that's different? Because, you know, I ask you, what's your plan? A good way to make, I've heard this quote before in AA, but a good way to make God laugh is to tell him your plan. And it was a lot of my, <laughs> yeah, a lot of my shit ideas and unbrilliant thinking that landed me in those seats in those rooms. So what's something, what's something that you can do that you are not looking forward to doing? You don't want to do, and you haven't tried before. Well, a typical Friday night. So my boyfriend, he does drink. He drinks a lot. I'm not going to call him an alcoholic. That's for him to decide. Mm -hmm. But he does drink a lot. He's also he's supportive of me if I drink or if I don't drink. Either way, if I don't drink, he said, "Look, if you don't want to drink, I won't have alcohol in the house." He's supportive. So, but a typical Friday night for us would be we'll either go out to a bar or we'll stay at home, watch Netflix, have some beers, have some dinner. Since we have separate dinner plans tonight, we'll probably just be at home. And the different thing will be, hey, I'm not drinking tonight. I'm going to sit here and have some Gatorade. I might get really uncomfortable and I might get really bitchy <laughs> and, you know, I might not be in a very good mood for the next couple of days. Try to understand that, which is not a comfortable conversation to have and not a very pleasant way to start the weekend, but mm -hmm. especially a holiday weekend. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So we're recording something that I've heard this done before. And I've done it. I've mm -hmm. done it myself. My parents had to listen to about 35 episodes before the light bulb went off. It's like, wow. Yeah, we had no idea. Things are pretty serious. And uh, as some yeah. interviewees have actually sat loved ones down in a living room and played this podcast for them. 
So I'd recommend you do. Yeah. You say, hey, I'm not drinking tonight, but you don't have to answer the why. You can just send them, email them a link to this podcast and, and hopefully it will shed some light on what's going on. You know, a normal drinker, they're not ever going to get it, which is great. I don't wish this yeah. problem on anybody, but that's a big step. You know, the accountability and being honest with uh, yourself and others. I, I think he's borderline, honestly. If I, I mean, I think he might be headed in that direction and I, I don't want that. I don't want to say that, but um, I think he's borderline. So, but I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. That's for him to decide, you know, but yes, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah. It, it, just like you said, it's not for you to decide it's for him and hopefully he's not, but if he is, yep. you get sober. Wow. What, what a tremendous example of somebody who's gone through the that's, luck. Right. You can do it too. Yeah. And Megan, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Let's go. Let's go. Number one, Megan, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, let me pick a blackout. <laughs> okay, blacking out the 10-mile run in D.C., the Cherry Blossom run a couple years ago. I did the run. I did pretty well. I started drinking immediately afterwards, got on the train to go back to Baltimore from D.C., drank on the train, drank at the train station, drank when I got back to Baltimore, woke up the next day, and I have no memory of how I got home. I had apparently spent a ton of money. I have no idea where I spent it or what I did. That was terrifying. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. Tell me about a time when you had an oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't control your alcohol. Okay. This was actually just about a month ago. I got up in the morning and was walking to the grocery store and I I was standing on the sidewalk and I my legs stopped working. I couldn't walk. I, literally, like I was frozen. I couldn't, I was afraid to move because I thought I was going to fall down. Hmm. And I had to just stand there for a while and wait. And then I just kind of inched across the street, shuffling, hmm. and went back home. Like, what is wrong with me? My body doesn't work anymore. That that was that was oh shit. That yeah. was really really oh shit. And in this journey that you're embarking on, this courageous journey that you're doing, what are some of your favorite resources? Earlier, you mentioned some other podcasts. I I love honestly podcasts are the best because you can put it on while you're doing something else, laundry, whatever, and just or fall asleep to it. I like yours. There's one called The Home Podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it's What's that two, about? Two, it's all caps, home. Um, it's, these, it's two women about my age. They've both been sober. One's been sober about two years, one a little bit longer, I think. And they're very, they're so honest and so real, and they interview different people. That's, that's pretty cool. I like The Share Podcast. There's one called Recovery 101. People that are out in California. There's a bunch of them. That, that would be my that would be my favorite podcast, generally speaking. What's pretty cool now, when I first started Recovery mm -hmm. Elevator, there was there was the Share podcast. There was Shane Raymer with the Sober Guy podcast. There was another one. Yeah, he's name, cool. He's a great guy. His name's Mark. Uh, it's more of an AA-based podcast. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. And maybe the Bubble Hour? But, gosh. The I mean, Bubble Hour is cool, yeah. There's a great one. And, you know, it's more yeah. female-oriented. But back then, there was like five to six podcasts. I looked about two weeks ago. Yeah. There's like 15 to 30 podcasts now, and some of them even have Recovery Elevator in their show description, which is cool. It's, it's, it, it feels good. Oh, it's nice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it says interviews similar to the Recovery Elevator podcast, and it's cool. It's awesome. I'm glad there's right. 30 podcasts, and I hope one day there's 100 podcasts out there about recovery because, like you said earlier in this podcast, more people need to talk about it. And, and next question, Megan. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received. 
Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I think it's, it actually came from you, but I've also heard it from other people, is don't beat yourself up, uh, honestly. I mean, because it True doesn't that. do any good at all. You know, you, 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 yeah, you screwed up. You know, things aren't good. Something awful happened and you made it worse. But don't, don't make it even worse by just beating the hell out of yourself. And I do that a lot. And I have to catch myself and say, look, this isn't helping. All you can do is move forward and do the next, do, do the next right thing mm-hmm. and just make a, make, a, make a better choice next time. Don't beat yourself up. And you don't have to have eons of sobriety time logged to drop value bombs because you dropped a lot of them during this interview, Megan. But what part and piece <laughs> of guidance do you have for listeners who are thinking about getting sober? I guess, yeah, you're, you're going to feel crappy. But if you're going to feel crappy anyway, don't feel crappy physically. Don't, don't make it worse on yourself by pouring poison into yourself. You know, it, yes, it, it's going to get better. It's going to get a little bit better every day. And you just have to be patient. And from what I understand from people that have been sober a year or two years, sometimes it takes six months to a year that really start to feel better. And you just have to be patient. So that's what I'm trying to focus on, <laughs> being patient. you got to be patient. And Megan, don't forget the pain. Don't forget that last drink. It, it's been it's been almost three years, six days away for me for three years. And I never want to forget mm-hmm. how painful it was. Yeah. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. You were raw. You were honest. And it sounds painful, and I don't want to go back. And before we depart, Megan, you know what's coming up. Mm-hmm. Give listeners your own customizer. <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if the liquor store on the corner knows exactly who you are and lines up your four fireball minis on the counter for you every day at 9 in the morning. Mm, yeah, that's that's yeah. That, 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 that classifies. Well, Megan... Thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Please keep in touch. You have to keep in touch with people I will. in recovery. You have to. I and will. We can't I do will. this alone. So thank you, Megan. Thanks, Paul. Now, I'd like to read a question that somebody emailed me. And if you're listening and you've got a question, email me at paul at recoveryelevator.com. I've never claimed to be a medical professional or an addictions counselor or whatnot, but I've been doing this for a while, and I'd love to share your question with listeners. Here it is. I'm really feeling lost tonight. My girlfriend, I've been seeing a while now, who is also an alcoholic, went in the hospital tonight from drinking. It's the second time in two weeks, and she just came out of rehab on July 5th. I'm really lost and don't know what direction I should go or even how this is going to affect my sobriety. I'm lost. My question is how to support a relapsing alcoholic when someone else is in early sobriety. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for the question, and I'm sorry to hear what you're going through. It sounds to me a little bit like the crabs in a bucket thing. You put one crab in a bucket, it usually can get out no problem. Put two crabs in a bucket, they're both stuck at the bottom of the bucket for eternity. One gets almost to the top, and the other crab pulls the other one to the bottom again. Now, this is just an analogy. I live in Bozeman, Montana. I'm completely landlocked. Last time I checked, there were not crabs in the pond nearby my house, and I've never tested this theory. But I do know from firsthand experience that You don't have to change much to get sober. Wait for it. You're like, shut up, Paul. I know it's coming, but you got to change everything. Now, I'm not saying you need to depart this relationship, but let's think about priorities for a second. There was a time in my life when my sobriety, my personal sobriety, was not my number one priority. At this moment, and for the last three years and five days, my sobriety has been my number one priority in life. Ahead of my mom, my dad, my brother, even ahead of my lovely standard poodle, Ben. 
They all know this. It's not a secret. They know that if my sobriety goes, it all goes. They know this, they understand it, and they fully support it. Now, I'm not saying you 100% need to leave your girlfriend, but this sounds like a volatile situation where the two crabs might be stuck on the bottom of the bucket for quite some time. Sometimes you might email the host of a podcast a question, and you might not like the answer. But rarely have I heard of a situation like this where the two people stay together and it ends up okay. But here's the good news. One person can leave the relationship and lead by example. Now, everybody needs to get sober for themselves. For example, in this example, the person who emailed me cannot convince their girlfriend that sobriety is the way to go, but they can lead by example. They can take these steps in early sobriety, get a month, get two months, get six months, get a year, and this other person, they might follow that same pathway. And eventually, within time, this relationship could be candled once again on sturdier grounding. But right now, to me, it sounds like it's much too volatile to continue together. And again, getting dating advice from me is kind of like getting stock tips from Bernie Madoff. So take that with a grain of salt. But thank you for the question. Okay, recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.